0: Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. This is Declan Garvey, editor of The Morning Dispatch. uh, And today we're going to talk about the economy. President Biden made economic growth the central theme of his State of the Union address earlier this week. And and for the moment, uh, at least, things are looking pretty good on that front. Gross domestic product data for 2022 came in stronger than expected. Unemployment is at its lowest level in over 50 years. Inflation is finally (laughs) starting to slow a little bit, Um, but there are certainly some some storm clouds on the horizon. And joining us today to to talk through some of those uh, storm clouds is Jason Furman, professor of economic policy at Harvard University and a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, he also has over a decade of experience in Washington, serving for eight years as a top economic advisor to President Barack Obama. And the last four of those years were as chairman of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. Um, what I really appreciate about Jason, though, is that he's one of the straightest shooters I've talked to in my economic reporting over the past several years. He doesn't stretch the data to to fit any partisan narrative and has been willing to, to raise the alarm. Um, about even democratic programs when, when he thinks it's necessary, uh, including, he was you know one of the first people to warn about impending inflation months before it really began to, to dominate the conversation a couple of years ago. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. So glad to be with you. So I want to start, uh, you know, we're recording this on, on Thursday, February 9th. We're two days out from uh, President Biden's State of the Union address. It was a State of the Union that focused uh, primarily on, on the economy. It was the first thing that he mentioned after he uh, welcomed everybody. And I think that's that's something that, uh, you know, w- wouldn't have been necessarily expected Um six months ago three months ago to to kind of that he would be in a position where he could spend so much of the speech on on the economy and and really drive that message uh but because we've seen inflation coming down because the labor market he got a really great jobs report a couple days before the speech it really was something that he felt confident that that he could hammer home i want to ask you just to to kind of start uh, as a broad overview how do you see the state of the economy uh we've got a lot of data coming in kind of give us the 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 2000 level view.
1: Yeah. So if you take a snapshot at the point of time we're at in the economy right now, it's really good. The question, though, is what's going to happen over the coming year. Um, the unemployment rate of three and a half, four, three point four percent is just extraordinary. Not something I ever saw, thought I'd see in my life. The continued, very rapid pace of job growth. And inflation has come down quite a lot. You know, core inflation was about 3% over the last three months. And if you look at headline inflation, that was more like 2% over the last um, three months. And workers are finally getting wage increases um, above inflation. So that's all the good part of it. Um, The question is, is that too good to last, too good to be true? Um, and I do have a lot of nervousness on that score. I worry that inflation is going to start picking up again, that it'll be hard to get inflation down sustainably to 2% um, with the unemployment rate staying where it is right now. And it's very hard to engineer sort of small tweaks to these variables without, you know, oversteering in one direction or another. But to take a moment and savor the where we are right now, I understand why he'd want to do that.
0: Right. It, uh, it was perfect timing for him to, to be able to, to make that, uh, those points and and we'll see if it sustains. I want to dive first into, into inflation. You know, the, the latest CPI report that we have is a little out of date at this point because we're due to have a, uh, January's early next week. I think on, on Valentine's day, that can be a a great romantic, uh, (laughs) uh, date that we, we, you know, talk about the inflation report, but, um, what we saw in December was actually deflation very, very slightly. It was, you know, prices down 0.1% on an adjusted basis. Um, is that expected to continue in, in uh, next month's report? What do, you, what do you expect to see when uh, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases that on Tuesday?
1: Yeah, I think we're, lot, we're almost certain to see higher headline inflation than we had in December. So prices rose again in January after falling in the month Of December. Even when you take the volatile things out, we are reasonably likely to see a faster pace of inflation. And the issue is that in the last quarter of the year, some of that was a durable change to a more sustainable economy, but some of it was probably temporary, unusually low inflation. Things like used car prices fell quite a lot at the end of last year. If you look in the wholesale market, you see those prices. Um, rising. Now we've just been talking about inflation, you know, in the month of January. Um, you know, the bigger issue is over the course of the year as a whole. And then I think you want to worry less about stories like used cars and eggs and gasoline and all the individual products, and start thinking at the macro economy as a whole, the labor market, wages, and
0: you know, the the, the overall macro stance. Right. And, and this is something that I know you've been talking about, uh, a lot for the past, I mean, 18 months, however long inflation's been the, the main economic story here, but that, you know, you can tell whatever story you want to tell, depending on the data that you include or, or not include. And so, you know, we'd have people saying, well, if you just take out used cars and eggs and, uh, you know, specific things, then it's not so bad. Uh, and, or, and then the next month, the, the basket of goods that you include in that changes. Um, We're now talking, you know, you hear tell of super core inflation that is uh, even more niche than core inflation, which uh, takes out energy and and food prices. Could you talk a little bit about um, what super core is, why people are talking about it now and um, and why you think it might not necessarily be the best indicator of of what what's going forward? The, The big thing for me is that you can think of inflation as micro.
1: Here are, you know, 15 different markets and let's tell a story for each one. Or you can think of inflation as macro, which is people are going to spend a certain amount. The economy is going to make a certain amount. We don't know exactly where the inflation is going to show up. But if it doesn't show up in eggs, it'll show up in, you know, bacon. Or something like that. So that, to me, is the broad um, economics of it. Supercore subtracts um, used cars and subtracts housing, in addition to subtracting food and energy. Um, I don't mind that. I think there's a certain logic. I I publish that number every month. Look at that, you know, on Twitter. I look at that number every month. So I think that's a fine number to look at, especially right now when. The housing data we're seeing is actually lagged and it's telling us more about past rent increases than um, current rent increases. But, you know, Supercore is not telling that different a story from Core. Both of them have come down from their highs and both of them are well above the Fed's 2% target. And both of those statements are true. Things are less bad, but things are very far from where they're supposed to be.
0: Right. And and before we move on to kind of the, the labor market aspect of this conversation, which I think is arguably the most important one now, is, as you mentioned, um, you know, it, when inflation first started to pick up a year and a half ago, what whatever it was, a lot of people, including Federal Reserve uh, members, were talking about transitory, transitory, that this was kind of a, a short term uh, blip that, you know, supply chains were were messed up by COVID and once those snarl, things will start to return to normal. Is is this timeline that we're on that, you know, there's a um, a bank that was estimating inflation will be back down to 2% by the end of this year? Things are starting to drop now. Is this within the bucket of transitory? Is this what those people were talking about? Or kind of how do you see uh, the timeline that we've seen over the, the past uh, couple months here?
1: Yeah, I mean, the problem is that a lot of the transitory narrative was things like unusually high goods price growth will fall. And we've seen that the transitory narrative has happened, but other things have moved in the other direction. So goods price growth fell, but service price growth grew and services have three times the weight in the consumption basket as goods. And that's just another good example of why you want to think about the macro, think about it as a whole. Because if something goes right in one area and gets undone by another area, it basically doesn't count. So we've seen a lot of the transitory stuff materialize. Now, the question is, will service prices start to slow? Right now, they're moving unusually high. Um, Some of them, like the cost of housing, rent, likely will slow. um, But a lot of other ones are very dependent on the main input, which is labor. And their main cost is wages. And so you have to look at the labor market to understand you know, where the bulk of inflation is coming from and where it's likely to go.
0: And that's a perfect transition to to our next topic, which is uh, last Friday's jobs report that you know blew expectations out of the water. It was five hundred and seventeen thousand new jobs. Uh, I think the expected was under two hundred thousand, uh, kind of consensus expectation there, and then the unemployment rate falling to. 3.4%, which is its lowest level since 1969, or tying it uh, since 1969. Why? I know there are some seasonal aspects of this that I wanna ask you about after this, but why do you think uh, the labor market remains as hot as it does despite these record Fed interest rate hikes that we've seen and and a concentrated effort by the Fed to <laughs> slow, slow these job growth?
1: It's pretty amazing. I think the broad macro story in 2022, is that both monetary and fiscal policy have long and variable lags. And if you look at the economy consumption, which is 70% of GDP was really strong, or reasonably strong, that reflects the lagged effect of fiscal policy. We did gave people lots and lots of money. We did fiscal stimulus, which totaled 25% of GDP in 2020 and 2021 combined. And people didn't spend that money right away, in part because they never spend it all right away. And that was even more true in COVID when you couldn't buy especially services. And so even though it's only a year or two, you know, even though it's a year or two years after the stimulus happened, people still had that money. It's sometimes called excess saving. We're spending it. So that was moving the economy one direction. Fighting against that, moving it the other direction, the interest rate increases. You really do see them in the residential construction part of GDP. We saw the housing sector um, uh, fell for three straight quarters. It was the largest decline that we've seen um, since the financial crisis. It just wasn't big enough to overwhelm the boost from consumption. So on net, the economy grew pretty strongly in the second half of the year, grew okay if you look at the year as a whole. And um, as a result of that, uh, job growth continued to be strong throughout the year, probably a bit stronger than I would have expected, um, maybe reflecting some continued gradual improvements in labor supply as well.
0: And I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners will will um be curious and, and and want me to ask this that you know we're seeing all these kind of headlines coming out about Google lays off 10,000 workers. Amazon lays off 15,000 workers. Just yesterday, Disney announced 7,000 layoffs. At the same time, the uh, we're getting these incredibly robust job numbers coming out month after month after month. Where where is the disconnect? There is, is it are those layoffs confined to specific sectors? Um, and and kind of why do you think that these high profile companies are not necessarily following the, the same trends that we're seeing as a as a country as a whole?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I think to understand is there are 150 million jobs in our economy. And when you're looking at headlines about, you know, Google and Meta and whatever else, you're looking at companies that employ maybe between them a million people. And so you're looking at a very small subset, less than 1% of the employment in the country as a whole. Moreover, many of those people being laid off may not have lost their job already. It may be a planned layoff. Or if they have lost their job, they may already have found another job um, somewhere else. And these paper reports suggest a lot of them have. So it doesn't surprise me that the aggregate data doesn't match up. Um, and tech is especially unrepresentative because it's staffed up really heavily during the pandemic. It's probably over-optimistic about how much some of the pandemic stay at home, do everything on screens, etc., um would last. And so some of the layoffs we're seeing there really are just returning employment to where it was a year and a half ago or something like that, not some big dramatic change. And you don't have, you know, that same type of overcorrection elsewhere in the economy. And that's why, you know, I read the newspaper articles too. I think they're important to try to understand, but really you want data, the data provided by the government, um, not just a series of anecdotes. It's hard to add up the economy as a whole with those anecdotes.
0: Right. Um, And you talked about, you know, employment returning to pre-COVID levels, we, I think in total employment has surpassed where we were, um, in, in February of 2020, the, the labor force participation rate has stayed a little stagnant. I know, uh, in this recent jobs report, we saw that, uh, one of the, the biggest holdouts in terms of, um, the COVID economy was, you know, uh, working women are, are now back in the, in the economy at a, at a much higher rate than they were, um, Why do you think that kind of the the labor force participation rate has held pretty steady uh, over the course of this, as we're adding uh, all these hundreds of thousands of workers back to the economy?
1: Yeah. So first of all, let's distinguish between two things. One is the level of the labor force. There's about 166 million people who either are working or looking for jobs. That's what is called the labor force. That is a couple million lower than we thought it would be, because there have been less immigrants, and because of the premature deaths from COVID. And so there definitely is a smaller labor force. There's then a second thing, the labor force participation rate, which is what fraction of the population um, is in the labor force. That's around 62% right now. And as you said, that's been roughly stable over the last year. And the percentage of the population is a battle of two forces. One is demography is trying to take it down because we have an aging population, more older workers, more older people, and older people are less likely um, to work. At the same time, you have some people that have been returning because, you know, they ran out of the money the government gave them, or they're okay with COVID now, or they finally have childcare, you know, whatever their reason is, they're coming back in. And those two seem to be roughly canceling each other out. Um, I actually don't think there's much of a mystery or problem about where the labor force participation rate is right now. Sort of roughly within the margin of error, you would have expected it to be prior to COVID. And prior to COVID, I thought it was going to fall because of the aging of the population. Um, The issue is not the 62% of the population is working. It's just the population is smaller than it would normally be. The thing you're multiplying that 62% by um, because of the lack of immigrants and the premature deaths. To me, that's the problem in the economy.
0: I mentioned it earlier, but I, I do want to touch on um, there is some wonkiness, I think, generally speaking in the January jobs report uh, that, that we see year after year in terms of that's when uh, the BLS recalculates some population, it kind of adjusts for, for different things. Do you see that as kind of a, a major factor in why there was such a blowout, uh, 517,000 Jobs this year. Can you kind of walk listeners through how that number is calculated and why we might want to take January with a grain of salt?
1: January is always, as you just said, a tricky month. Um, It's a tricky month in part because there's just huge seasonal changes in employment that they have to seasonally adjust away. In part because once a year they adjust the population and update it, and through the rest of the year they do a projection. For wages, it's tricky, because a lot of people get their raises in the month of January, and they try to deal with all of those quirks. They can't be perfectly successful um, in dealing with all of those quirks in the data, so it can be a little bit more volatile. I do think, though, the numbers in January were just so large and so striking, it is unlikely that even if you made all sorts of corrections, that you still wouldn't end up with something large. So the headline was 517,000 jobs. You know, was the truth 300,000? Maybe. Was the truth 800,000? Uh, maybe. Um, was the truth zero? I highly doubt it. So it was, it was almost certainly, um, a strong month, even if you throw whatever adjustments. But look, in general, you just never should change your view of the economy that much based on one month's data. Um, the data itself could be wrong just because of noise. And that month itself just could have been um, a weird month. So I did update my views a bit, but not nearly as much as just the initial shock of seeing that very
0: surprising headline number. Right. And the the reason that, I mean, the reason that the Federal Reserve is is paying so close attention to... These uh, these job reports and, and the reason why I think a lot of economists are as well is is largely because of uh, or looking specifically at the wage growth number that you mentioned earlier uh, and and what that could spell for inflation going forward. Could you kind of talk through what the the trends are there in terms of how uh, you know the labor market is obviously still very hot. Are are pressures on on wages equally hot? Are they going to continue to contribute and filter into the services? sector inflation that you were talking about earlier or kind of how do you think that the federal reserve is thinking about that after last week's report um
1: well i'll tell you how i'm thinking about it i think it's similar to how they're thinking about it but they, they could reserve the right to differ from me of course nominal wages wages not adjusted for inflation are currently growing at about five percent a year the exact rate depends on which measure you're looking at some measures are a bit lower some measures are a bit higher but let's call it five percent. That is about two percentage points faster than the pace of wage growth prior to COVID. If you look historically, that is associated with about 35 to 4% inflation. So whenever wages are growing at 5%, the inflation rate is generally growing about 35 or 4%. Why might wage growth slow? Or why might price growth slow, even if wage growth doesn't slow? The best scenario is if businesses become much more productive, then they can afford to give workers higher raises without that much inflation. I think that's possible, but certainly not a reasonable thing to expect because, you know, inflation, uh, productivity can go up, it can go down. Businesses could absorb those wage increases without passing them on to prices by having lower profits. I wouldn't mind that. In fact, if I could root for something, I'd root for that. But you asked me for a prediction, not what I'm rooting for. And my prediction is that businesses won't absorb those wage increases. They'll pass them on in the form of prices. That's generally what they've done historically. Um, A third thing is wage growth could come down. Um, It could come down maybe because the number of job openings fall without the unemployment rate rising that's what some people were hoping for we haven't seen that happen in fact the un- openings have gone up lately um not down um and then the last thing is we could see a big increase in the unemployment rate and if that happens then yes i do think we would see lower wage growth and that i think would feed into lower price growth and that's the so-called hard landing scenario that i still think is one of the main ways in which we should expect to see uh, inflation come back down to something resembling 2%. Yeah.
0: And that kind of leads me to my, the, the next subject here is, which is Federal Reserve and their reaction to the the recent data that we've seen. Jerome Powell, the, the Fed chairman was asked earlier this week at an event here in DC, um, if if the Fed would have done something differently, had they, they had a meeting last week where they raised interest rates by 25 basis points. It was a slower increase than we've seen or become accustomed to over the past several months. Um, But he was asked, would you have done something more if you knew that this jobs report was coming? He didn't answer that question, but he did say that uh, it shows you, quote, why we think this will be a process that takes a significant period of time and that it was, quote, stronger than anyone I know expected. Do you think that they're going to be back to 50 basis points or 75 basis points uh, in, at their next meeting? Or do you think that kind of they're now in a more of a wait and see approach and, and think that they're kind of close to where they want interest rates to end up?
1: My guess is they'll still do 25 um, and the next meeting and that the big variable will be what they publish in terms of the dots, which tell you what they, where they expect interest rates to be at the end of the year. And then the words they use around how many more hikes are coming. I don't think there's any question that they're going to continue to send the message that they expect that they're not cutting rates um, any time this year. That they've been very clear about. The market doesn't completely believe them. But the issue is how much higher will they go? I think that's the main degree of freedom they have. And they're not that focused on you know how quickly they get to something. They, they think the terminal rate is more important than the exact path to that terminal rate. There's a lot of data between now and the next meeting, but I think it's a decent chance that inflation picks up a bit again. Not as bad as it was last summer, but worse than it was in the last couple months. And that that plus the jobs data send a little bit of a spooky message to policymakers. And remember, they have a dual mandate, employment and prices. Their employment mandate is being fulfilled right now. There's no problem there. In fact, if anything, the economy is below the natural rate of unemployment as they believe it to be. And their issue is um, entirely on the price side. So even if we didn't have a lot of inflation with unemployment at this rate, they would want restrictive monetary
0: policy. Obviously, they're going to be looking at the the next jobs number. They're going to be looking at CPI next week. What are kind of the under-the-radar economic indicators that, that you watch or, or that you think they'll be watching um, in addition to those two, whether it be job openings or consumer spending or um, uh, even you know, trade data or, or what, what else are you looking at um, in, the, in the coming weeks here?
1: Well, I look at everything, <laughs> um, but you know, what do I obsess over the most? Frankly, the pace of wage growth to me is the most important indicator. We get every month, average hourly earnings. We also get every month, the um, Atlanta Fed does a better version of adjusting for composition. And we you know, got those numbers for January and they show wages grew, I think it's 6.1% over the last year. Um, I look at different measures of labor market tightness, both private and public, trying to look not just at unemployment rate, but job openings, quits, and um the like. But then to understand the economy as a whole, lately there's been a little bit of a disconnect between the soft indicators, surveys about confidence and about plans, especially on the part of business, um, have been much more negative than the hard data has been in the economy. And trying to understand what matters, the soft data, the hard data, how to reconcile those is I think a little bit of an ongoing mini puzzle in reading the data.
0: Larry Summers, uh, who former Treasury Secretary, somebody who um, over the past two years has kind of been very willing to to talk about uh, what where he sees the economy, not through it necessarily a partisan lens, kind of uh, pushing back on some of the administration's points, said that even he is uh, more optimistic about the the pro, pro, uh, prospects of a soft landing, uh, which would be bringing inflation back down to the 2% or so target rate without a massive spike in unemployment, but that we're still, you know, not out of the woods yet. He's not entirely convinced. Where are you on on that? I know you mentioned you saw a hard landing as a, a very real possibility, but kind of if you had to put odds on it or kind of trend lines, do you think we're trending closer to a soft landing or, or things haven't really changed all that much?
1: Absolutely trending closer to a soft landing, but I also used to be at a 10% probability, and now I'm at a 20% um, probability. So I still don't think it's the, the odds-on favorite. And just understand, there's four things that could happen in the economy. Soft lending, inflation comes down without a recession. Hard lending, we have a recession, but it does bring inflation down. It is also possible that we have a recession that doesn't bring inflation down below, say, 3%. Or to 2%. A lot of our recessions historically have only cut inflation rates by one percentage point. So maybe we have a recession and we'll come out of it with an inflation rate of 3%. I wouldn't call that a hard landing because we won't have landed. Um, and then finally, there's a fourth possibility, which is we don't have a recession and we continue to have inflation above 3%. I actually think that might be the most likely thing to happen. Again, any one of these four could happen but I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have a recession. And if we don't have a recession, then I would expect we continue to have inflation above
0: 3%. Fifth option, we don't raise the debt ceiling and the whole economy collapses and we don't have to worry about any of this. Um, this is not a debt ceiling podcast. We don't have to, to get into all that. But um, I do want to uh, ask you a, a couple questions about we, we're hearing reports of kind of some... some Swap ups in the Biden White House's economic team. Uh, this is obviously you uh, served as, as uh, the counsel, or on the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Um, we're seeing so Brian Deese, who's the National Economic Council Director, is stepping down as is Cecilia Rouse, the CEA. And reportedly, there, there's nothing final yet, but we're hearing reports that Lyle Brainerd uh, might take over the NEC job and, and Jared Bernstein, the CEA. Um, what are, I'm sure you have worked with all these people in, in the past. What are your kind of thoughts about the, the job that they've done over, over the past two years? And if there are any differences that you can expect to see, or the American people can expect to see in the administration's economic policy going forward with that, uh, possible switch.
1: Yeah. And no, so all four names you just had are, are personal friends, people I know from anywhere between 15 and 25 years ago, depending on, uh, which one you're talking about. Um, I think Brian and CeCe have just done great jobs um, in the administration. There are a number of names that I've heard for both of the other slots, but certainly uh, the names you mentioned, Lael, has done an excellent job at the Fed. So the question is, I have no doubt she would do an excellent job at NEC, um, but does the president, would he rather see her at the state at the Fed or would he rather have her um, come over? Um, She's an economist, uh, has her PhD, I think, from Harvard, um, taught at MIT, and focuses on international issues, but knows a huge amount uh, domestically. And Jared is somebody that um, the president trusts quite a lot. He was his chief economic advisor at the beginning of the Obama administration when he was vice president, and um, they have a good rapport, and Jared is a very smart, sensible person, focused you know, especially on labor markets and macro, so there'd be other great people for those two jobs, um, and those two people would also be great for those two jobs. As long as it's not me, I'm happy.
0: <laughs> I, I I can uh, understand why nobody would want to come to Washington right now. Uh, absolutely, the um, you know with with divided government, uh, we're we're likely not to see the you know three or four trillion whatever it was in, uh, additional spending that, that was passed in the last Congress for, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the, the main thing will be kind of this debt ceiling negotiation, but do you think that there's anything that either that the president outlined in the state of the union or, or anything else that's been kind of bubbling that could pass in, in a uh, upcoming Congress that would meaningfully change the trajectory of any of the things that we've been talking about the past half hour?
1: not raising the debt limit would change the trajectory of everything um we've (laughs) been talking about um that it would bring the trajectory down (laughs) yeah bring the trajectory down um beyond that you know look if we spend discretionary money smartly we'll have a bit more growth over the long term if we do stupid things we'll have a bit less growth over the long term Um, it probably matters more for priorities Like education, national defense, et cetera, than it does for GDP, particularly. Some of the main things economically the Biden administration is going to be doing over the next two years are implementing uh, the big legislation, something like the CHIPS Act for semiconductors um, and microchips in the United States that the president talked about. Um, That's not self executing. It's not like Congress gave a very, very detailed set of instructions about how to spend that money. The administration has a team that's going to have to figure out how to spend that money. I think if they do a good job, it can be. It could be a good thing. Um, and if they don't, uh, we could end up wasting the money. Um, I, you know, I'm hopeful it's going to work out, but that execution, the execution on infrastructure, the execution on climate change, and then some executive actions on things, especially in the area of competition where I'm enthusiastic about some of what they're talking about, not all. Um, and the area of Buy American, which the president stressed a lot in his State of the Union where I'm, uh, generally very unenthusiastic but um, you know as much as i don't like buy american it's not going to show up in some huge negative way in the gdp numbers it's it's a you know it's a negative thing but not huge so really the debt limit is the only thing that and the fed are the only two government policy things that will move the needle on the macro data in some noticeable way
0: yeah i could i could hear my colleague scott come shouting in in my ear about the the high American provision when you, when you brought that up, you know, he's, oh, I, a, I, I,
1: you know, I agree with most of Scott's read of the data <laughs> and, and I don't know that he would doubt me yeah. when I say yeah. know, something can be quite bad and still be 0.001%
0: yeah. exactly. actually show up in a GDP report. Right. No, exactly. Um, and the, while I do have you here, I, you know, we've had this debate in Washington, uh, pretty stupid debate. If you ask me over the past couple days, um, about Medicare, social security and, um, Republicans' demands about bringing down the, the debt and deficit without meaningfully touching any of that. There seemed to be some sort of agreement uh, during the State of the Union that both parties are unanimous in their support for, for not touching that. You can agree or disagree on how important the debt and deficit reduction is in the long term. I know that economists have different views on that. But in, in your view, is it possible to make a meaningful dent one way or the other? Uh, without touching either of those entitlement programs?
1: Of course it is. You'd have to do more revenue. Frankly, you'd have to do more revenue than you could do with the constraints the Democrats have put on themselves of not raising taxes on anyone below, I think it is $400,000. But yeah, I would much rather that Speaker McCarthy had walked into the White House and said, you know, I'm going to raise the debt limit tomorrow. Not going to negotiate over that. But Medicare is running out of money in five years. Social Security is running out of money in 10 years. Let's work on those. And it's so important that let's also put revenue on the table, Mr. President, because we you know, want to do this with spending. You want to do it with revenue. Let's do a deal and do both of those. Um, of course, that's not what he said. I'm not sure if he had said that, what the president would have responded to him. And so we're in a conversation where basically everything, the two big things, revenue and the major spending programs are basically off the table from the very beginning of the conversation. And so, yes, once you take both of those off the table, um, then mathematically, there's essentially nothing you can do unless you want to, you know, inviscerate um, in a way that no one wants to, everything else.
0: I think you just described a good reason why you do not want to come back to Washington yes. uh, anytime in the near future. Yeah. Yes, um, fair well, enough. Jason, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Dispatch Podcast. I think our listeners will Really enjoy this. I normally at this time of year I would ask you um, how you're preparing to watch the Patriots in the Super Bowl, but obviously uh, not the case this year. So, how uh, how are you feeling about pitchers and catchers reporting uh, in a couple of days here for your Red Sox?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, for me, the the Bruins season has been just True. like the last Jobs number, just you know, spectacular <laughs> off the charts. I think maybe it's like mismeasured or some seasonal adjustment issue because. The data just don't make sense. They're so strong. Um, (laughs) So I've been really happy about that. And, um, you know, and and a little bit like the uh, economic data, I'm sort of enjoying the moment while dreading uh, that there may be worse things to come. And that worst thing to come may be the Red Sox uh, this coming season.
0: Yeah, I was hoping you guys would not extend raphael Devers, uh, so that the cubs could grab him but uh, congrats oh. on that finally finally opened up the checkbook yeah
1: and look i mean my children have been living here for six years and it's just like every player they fall in love with is gone within that can't buy a time. jersey Yet, yeah right the idea that like you could have one player that they could spend you know their childhood uh being attached to and maybe that player is an outstanding player even better so yeah I'm glad yes.
0: We Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, Javier Baez—all gone. Um, still, still recovering from that. But Jason, thank you so much for for joining us, and uh, have a good rest of the day. Great talking.